Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How wonderful to see you all here. My deepest and sincere thanks to all of you for your great gift of your time and attention this morning. There's no more precious gift you can give, and I, I'll do my best to use that gift wisely. And also, always my thanks to my teacher and our teacher, Galen Roshi, uh, for her invitation to give this talk and for her guidance. We seem to need this. Okay. And her teachings. Is that better? <coughs> One, two, three. <laughs> and her infinite patience with me. <laughs> I would like to talk today about aging and about the insights that Zen teachings can bring, or that I have found that it can bring to that teaching. Yesterday was a wonderful day at the temple as uh, seven bodhisattvas underwent the beautiful and ancient ceremony of Jukai and formally received the Buddhist precepts, uh, dedicating themselves to the life in the way of the Buddha. Uh, it's a, it's a, a profound and wonderful ceremony, and congratulations to all of them. Um, it was also, as a personal milestone, a big day to me because it was my 70th birthday, and so I celebrated with uh, family and friends, and it's, it's the first time that we had all gotten together uh, in quite some years, and the first time that my grandson was able to meet all his aunts and uncles. So uh, aging has been much on my mind, and I, I cast about various topics, but it always came back to aging. It just was not something my mind was going to let me to talk about anything else. So, But I hope that I can convince you that it might be of interest to you to consider as well. I'd like to consider the following questions this morning. First, what are the teachings of Zen that can help illuminate the process of aging? Second, why talk about aging? All right, it's clear to me why it's of interest to me, but most of you are younger than I am, and it may not be that interesting a question to you. Why then is that an appropriate topic at this time and this place? So I'd like to examine some of the ways that that might be of interest. Third, what is the experience of aging? It's one thing just to say aging, but specifically, what aspects of life am I talking about that are affecting my ages? And finally, what do these teachings that we've just discussed have to do with these problems of aging? that I have just described. So, question number one, what does a Buddhism say about aging? Well, for me, and I think to many that have studied Buddhism, the first thing that comes to mind is the story of Siddhartha Gautama and his chariot ride and his renunciation. Siddhartha, as the story goes, was a young prince his father wished to protect him from suffering in the world, and so he was raised in a palace completely isolated from all the possible suffering in the world. And one evening, he snuck out of the palace and took a chariot ride. And along his chariot ride, he saw uh, 
an old man, a sick man, a corpse, and a monk. And his chariot, charioteer explained to him that old age, disease, and death come to all beings. And the monk was someone who was seeking a way to escape this suffering. Um, and that night, well, not that night, but then after reflecting on this, young Siddhartha, in the middle of the night, climbed over the palace walls, cut off his hair, and began the life as a wandering ascetic and renunciate, which would eventually lead to his awakening and to his becoming the teacher that we call the Buddha. When I first encountered that story, probably in an introduction to religion class, uh, what I heard was that life is full of inevitable pain and that death was no escape from all this pain because after all, you'd just be reborn and have to go through it again. Sickness, old age, and death were so awful that not even the best life that you could imagine, this life of young Otamo with all the food and music and dancing girls, that even that life was not worth living because you would ultimately face old age, sickness, and death. The only solution was to escape from the cycle of birth and death entirely. Now, that's a really negative view of old age. It's so awful that it outweighs everything possible that could possibly happen in your life. To see the story this way is a mistake. Buddhism, including Zen, is not about escaping life. It's about seeing life clearly which in fact means embracing life fully and completely. And while we may give up some illusions about life, we never ever turn away from life itself. So we're not going to escape old age. We're not going to declare it a terrible thing. So if that's not the lesson, what does Buddhism teach about aging? And after some thought and some discussions with Galen Roshi, it turns out that's not a useful question. Well, the problem, twofold. First, Buddhism is vast, and Buddhism is ancient, and Buddhism has many, many, many teachings. And it's very rare that you can say of any particular topic, Buddhism teaches that, all right? You're going to find that there are many, many different teachings given in many different times and places. So there's hardly ever a simple answer to the question, what does Buddhism teach about anything? Also, the experience of aging has changed greatly from Buddha's time and is different throughout the world. The experience of aging depends on the medical support that you have available to you, the social structures that you live in, your financial situation, the sort of uh, familial structure that you live in. So to talk about Aging as some monolithic thing is not a useful approach. So I had to narrow my question down a bit. And so what I want to talk about is the more specific question of which teachings of Zen I find helpful for me to understand aging as I am experiencing in my life right now. So what are those teachings of Buddhism and of Zen? The approach I find most useful in examining the experience of aging is the Buddhist concept of emptiness, which we chant about every, every service. And emptiness to me has two aspects, interdependence and impermanence. 
And let me say now, for much of the following, I'm drawing on sources from the ancient uh, Indian Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna and from the more contemporary uh, Japanese Zen teacher, uh, Dining Katagiri. So much of the things I'm about to say are drawn from those sources. So impermanence and interdependence. Impermanence means that things change. Well, that sounds trivial, doesn't it? You, you plant a little sapling and you get a tree, you lay out an ice cube, it turns into a puddle of water. <coughs> Everything changes. But when Buddhists talk about impermanence, they mean something very deep and very immediate. Okay, I'm not the same person I was five years ago. We're comfortable with that. We, we recognize that we change. But I'm not the same person I was five minutes ago. I'm not the same person I was five seconds ago. And this is true of everything. People, dogs, cats, mountains, walls, tiles, and pebbles. Everything is changing constantly. And therefore, everything is in flux constantly. I think that there is a Neely that was five years old. And then there was a Neely that was 30 years old, and there was a Neely that was 40 years old, and now there's a Neely that's 70 years old. There was a Neely that was single, a Neely that was married, a Neely that was a father, a Neely that was a professor. And in a sense, that is true. There were those things and there are those things, but not in the sense that we usually feel when we look at our life. There's no such thing as a thing that was Neely which was all of those things. There was a constantly changing process, which by convention, we call Neely. And it's not correct to say that Neely does not exist. Here I am, and I'm talking, and you're listening. But Neely does not exist as an object that is moving through time. There is not a fixed Neely that has experienced each of these things. There is a Neely that is each of these experiences. That sounds awfully abstract, I know. Uh, but it feels very real to me. So, impermanence is the recognition that everything changes, not eventually but instantaneously every moment. No single thing exists in a deep sense of being a permanent fixed thing. Interdependence means that the way in which this process we call Neely changes do not just depend on Neely. It depends on the whole rest of the universe. I change at each moment and what I become depends on everything else in the universe. I walked in this morning and you smiled and talked to me. That makes me a different person than who I would have been if you had not smiled and talked to me. Your action literally helped determine who I become. It's not a metaphor. It's not poetry. It's just the truth. Who you are helps determine who I become, and who I am helps determine who you become. We are not separable from each other or from the world. And this happens constantly. The way in which all things give rise to each other is called in Buddhism dependent co-arising. 
which is a beautiful phrase because it captures both impermanence and interdependence. We are constantly arising. We are arising along with everything else. Nothing lasts even for an instant. What arises next depends on everything else. We are a vast and constantly shifting and changing network. Nothing is separate from anything else, but it is convenient, it's necessary, to label parts of the whole with separate names. And this is the so-called conventional reality. And it is a reality. Things do exist. If you decide that a truck is a convenient label for a collection of phenomena and step in front of it, it will kill you. Even though in some sense there is no truck. And in some sense there is no youth. But in some sense you will be dead. <laughs> At this point, language becomes a very, very tricky business. <laughs> and again, that may sound abstract, but to me it seems so very beautiful. We live in, we are, a constantly changing, connected, interconnected wholeness. The changes are not random, but they arise from the process of dependent co-arising. It is beyond our comprehension as a single individual, but we can watch it and see it at work. So those are the basic Buddhist concepts that I want to bring to bear today. Uh, emptiness, by which we mean impermanence and interdependence. Now, why talk about aging? All right, we know why I'm talking about aging, but why should you listen to me talk about aging? Um, there's several problems with this choice as a topic. First of all, old age is really an arbitrary concept. When does it begin? 65, 70? But you know, most of the categories in our life are arbitrary. If you're on this side of one blood pressure, you're okay. If you're on this side, you have high blood pressure. Here, you're not diabetic. Here, you are diabetic. Here, you're not obese. Here, you are obese. Here, you're not elderly. Here, you are elderly. Probably most of our categories are arbitrary cutoffs, but they are useful. It is useful to know that you have high blood pressure or that you are diabetic or that your weight may be a problem for your health. Okay, And so there is a point where it is useful to speak of being old. Okay, So just because a category is arbitrary doesn't mean it is useless. Now, this may be a topic of limited interest or application. Most of you are not elderly, but with a little luck, you will be. <laughs> and most of you in your lives probably have elderly people with which you interact. So perhaps you might want to think about it a little. All right. You might want to prepare yourself a little or develop a little understanding with what your older friends and relatives are going through. But most important, and uh, this was the thing that really sunk into me, there are no problems of aging. None of the problems I'm going to talk about are specific to aging. They can come up to anyone at any time in life. They just, as you get older, may become more apparent or more likely to arise. But every problem I want to talk about is something that all of us face every day. So I hope I can offer something that you will find useful. What are the problems of aging I, I find that I have, to, uh, I have to deal with? Well, one is a loss of health and abilities. 
I used to be an avid cyclist, but I'm not going to ride my bike 100 miles in a day anymore. Okay. I no longer see or taste or hear as vividly as I used to. Uh, I used to have a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have a medical team. (laughs) We face loss of friends and relatives to death. All right. My parents, my older brother, my PhD advisor, my work mentor, my Aikido sensei, my first Zen teacher. As you get older, there's a generation in front of me, and they are passing away. And that is sad. Some loss of independence arises. I need to rely more on people than I used to. Maybe it's for technology. Maybe it's for help with physical tasks. And associated with that is my fear of becoming a burden to other people, of becoming completely dependent on other people. I experience a loss of respect and social stature. As you get older, maybe it doesn't happen to everybody else, but I find myself treated differently. Uh, sales clerks and stores speak a little more slowly and a little more clearly. <laughs> and to be honest, that's helpful. <laughs> But it is, it is a different treatment than what I am used to. <laughs> number five. I, I was a statistician. I, I number things. <laughs> but that's a wonderful Buddhist tradition, so I am not ashamed. <laughs> buy giant books of numbered Buddhist lists. <sighs> I'm having to redefine my identity. I'm not Professor Atkinson. I'm not a husband. I'm not a father with young children. Uh, They're grown up and they do quite well. So who am I other than these roles in which I functioned? What are my new roles? And finally, facing my own mortality. I can no longer assume I have a lot of time left. That affects little simple things. Think about that when I buy a car, you know, am I going to buy a car that's going to last 20 years when I'm probably not, you know? Do I want to get a puppy when my life expectancy is probably not the same as that of a dog, you know? So, uh, but it also brings me face to face with with the great matter, with life and death in a way that I can't avoid. Now, this, of course, is a very personal list. Everyone's experience will be different, and I speak only for myself. And there are some challenges here that I have not faced that I do not wish to uh, denigrate. Old age can mean for some people severe financial hardship, isolation and loneliness, loss of mobility, maybe becoming housebound, elder abuse. I've been fortunate that so far these have not arisen in my life, but they are real And I do not wish to minimize them. I just can't talk about them because I'm not competent. I don't have experience. To be fair, there are some advantages of aging. Uh, Perhaps aging will bring more leisure time as you retire. Perhaps more financial freedom as you uh, simplify life. Maybe grandchildren. All the fun of the kids, and then you give them back. (laughs) 
Um, perhaps some perspective, with luck, a little bit of wisdom. For many people, this will not be the case, but for some, it will be. So those are the sort of problems that aging leads me to focus on. So emptiness, interdependence, impermanence, dependent core rising. How do these help me with my death, with the death of loved ones, with changes in life? All the problems I've listed about old age come down to this. Things are changing, and I don't always like that. I want to hold on to the things and people that I like, and I want to escape and avoid the people and things I don't like. And you know what? Those are problems we all face constantly. I think those are the only problems that we face. <laughs> things are changing, and we don't like it. So what is emptiness tell us about dealing with these problems. Consider first the problem of my own death. Well, see, labeling it as a problem right away gives away the secret, doesn't it? Death will be that moment at which I cease to exist. And so that depends on the view of the world where there was no kneeling, now there's a kneeling, now there's no kneeling, and there's my death when I cease to exist. But I've never existed as a separate, independent being. Here I am. Here is Neelik right now. And now let's wait a few seconds. <laughs> and now that Neely is gone. There's another one here, but that Neely is gone. And that wasn't painful. That wasn't terrifying. It happens every second. We pass away each moment. And so strangely, everything we do in life, we do for someone else. This struck me so vividly. I bumped like marble slab and bought an ice cream cone. And as I paid, I thought, I don't get to eat this ice cream cone. <laughs> I bought an ice cream cone for future needs. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ate the ice cream cone and enjoyed it and was very grateful to pass me. <laughs> <laughs> the ice cream cone. <laughs> There is no permanent self to die, all right? Now, of course, I'm still afraid of death. Uh, those beings in the past that might have been my ancestors that were not afraid of death did not live to reproduce. So I am, draw I, I am descended from a long line of ancestors that were appropriately afraid, afraid of death. But that doesn't mean I can't understand it. I'm creeped out by spiders. I just am. I don't know why. But I can read all the books and I can understand the importance that they're in fact not generally harmful. And that is a psychological fact will never completely go away. But I can understand that fear of spiders is not a rational fear. And I can act accordingly. Okay. Similarly, although I fear death, and I probably always will, I think if I had another hundred years of practice, I might learn not to. But working with what I have, I will probably always fear death. I can see that my fear of death is based on assumptions that might turn out not to be true. What about the death of others? Uh, as a specific example, consider my late wife, Paige, whom I loved and for whom I will always grieve. She had a wonderful smile. And I miss that smile. But there never was such a thing as Paige's smile. That's not an object. 
there was Paige smiling. It wasn't a thing, it was an activity. She had a habit that drove me crazy when we were first married. Uh, whenever we checked out at a checkout line, she would stop and smile and visit with the clerk a bit. And I thought, this is nuts. This is not a social interaction. This is a business transaction. <laughs> the clerk does not want to hear about your life. You're holding up the people in line. They just want to get up here and pay for their groceries and go home. This is inappropriate. But then I noticed when I'd look back, the clerk would still be smiling. And the clerk would smile to the next customer. And the next customer would smile. And that smile of pages went out into the world, and it's still out there. And I probably meet it a hundred times a day and don't know that that's where it started. So pages' smile went out into the world, and it is still there. But you know, Just as Paige's smile was not an act, was an activity and not an object, so was Paige herself, an activity, not an object. So are each of us. We're not objects. We are activities. All the elements of the universe came into each moment of Paige's being, and each moment of her being helped determine each moment of the rest of the universe. This is boundlessness. There was a page, and then there was not a page. This is true, but only in one sense. In an absolute sense, not true. As Gail very helpfully reminded us a few weeks ago, the absolute view is not superior to the relative view. It's not true that one is the correct view and one is the false view. But it takes both of them to have a complete view of the world. There was never a permanent fixed page for me to lose. There was a new page each moment. And if during my life with another person, I choose a moment and say, this is who my partner really is, then that moment is gone in an instant. And I have lost that partner in that instant. By trying to hold on to someone, I instantly lose them. All right. To hold a fixed idea of anyone in my mind is to cloud my view of that person and fail to see them as they truly are. This for me has been really, really important in relationships with anyone close to me, with wife, children, friends, students, teachers. My children are not fixed objects. They are a process and a part of a universal process. If I try to hold an image of what I think they are, then at once I lose clear sight of them. I replace what is actually in front of me with a mental construct. I cannot say of a wife, this is the person I married. She must not change. Then she would not be the person I married any longer. Each person is changed each moment. This impermanence is actually one of the greatest blessings of our life. If we were permanent and fixed, there'd be no growth, no development. There'd be no path. There'd be no practice. Because of impermanence, we continually change and grow. With a partner or a child or a teacher or a student, if we realize and embrace that we're both part of an ever-changing process, then the relationship can grow and can deepen. We have more freedom with each moment when we are not bound to past grievances, expectations, and demands. 
This doesn't mean that we never grieve. When someone dies, something really truly is lost. But equally, something is not lost. The world that rearranged itself into our loved for a while goes on rearranging itself. All that our loved one gave to the world goes on. The boundary between us and our loved one and the world was never a clear one, and it still is not a clear one. Something was truly lost, but not in the way we think. I would never make these remarks at a funeral. All right, we do need to grieve. We need to grieve deeply, and we need to grieve truly. We need to acknowledge our loss. We can also see over time that loss is not what we usually think it is. I find myself resisting this idea of emptiness most strongly when I think about the people I love. And I'm really saying, if I look at my beloved daughter, that she does not really exist? No, of course not. There she is. She exists. But if I see that someone, in a deep sense, is empty, they don't suddenly disappear. We're not the fairies in Peter Pan. <laughs> if you remember that story, fairies are real in the world of Peter Pan, but only as long as someone believes in them. And every time a child says, I don't believe in fairies, a fairy dies. We're not like that. When you see the reality of emptiness, absolutely nothing changes physically in the world. People are exactly what they always were. It's just now that you are seeing them for what they were and what they always were. Okay? You see in a different, deeper way, a way that gives freedom to both of you. For me, the loss of myself, the fear of loss of myself and of my loved ones were the greatest challenges. But there are the others. What about um, declining abilities or health? What about loss of independence, loss of respect, loss of questions about identity? Okay, in a sense, my identity has changed. I was a professor, now I'm not. I was a husband, now I'm not. But my whole life, my identity has been constantly changing, always. These are various labels. These are decorations that we hang on to this process that I hang on to myself, but they're not me. Because there never was a me in the sense of a fixed object that has these attributes. By trying to hold on to those labels as an identity, I actually miss the flow of what is truly going on in my life right now in front of me. Similarly, with declining health or declining abilities, the problem is that I want to hold on to who I think I was. I wish to be a fixed thing in the world that doesn't change, but that's just not the case. It never was. I am change. And to forget that is to fail to see the world, to see myself or to see others. I fear becoming dependent on others as though I've ever been independent. <laughs> of course not. <clears throat> I always have been totally and completely dependent on everyone in the very simple, obvious ways that I don't make my own clothes, I don't grow my own food, I didn't pave any roads, and in the deeper way that we arise each moment only in our dependent co-arising, <coughs> our independent co-arising with everyone. Perhaps as we age, we awake to what always has been the truth. We depend completely on others. And we are no separate from those others. 
So in conclusion, first, the problems of aging are not unique to aging. And the tools and practice that I find useful for dealing with those problems are important at all stages of life. For me right now, what I'm finding most useful is the understanding that it is only by entering fully into the flow of life, by not trying to freeze that flow into fixed concepts and objects, that we truly can live in the wonder of our experience. Only in emptiness can we find the true fullness that is our life. Other people may find different approaches more helpful in dealing with life. Other people may find other uh, experiences in dealing with their life. I can only share what I have observed for myself and hope that by sharing it with you, you can find something helpful in what I have said. Thank you for your time and thank you for your attention.